Well, good morning, everybody. Um, this is the next 40 minutes. Uh, we're dealing with uh, global commerce and uh, global supply chain challenges. Um, anyone who's been alive uh, since two, 2020 uh, is well aware of what those challenges have been in our industry. Um, and the, um, the, the thing that's uh, most incredible to me, uh, having watched this, and certainly anyone who's tried to buy a car or major appliances over the last few years knows on a, on a retail level uh, what has been going on. Um, and the thing that is most interesting to me about this topic is that when you look across the spectrum of supply chain participants, and we have um, that some of those uh, participants represented here, um, you have a divergence, uh, and, and a complete divergence sometimes of opinion uh, between and among supply chain participants as to what the causes of the supply chain disruptions have been and what the fixes are. And here comes Beth Ann. Welcome, Beth Ann. <laughs> Um, for me, as I look at it, you know, when you, when you, when you talk to truckers and shippers associations, uh, BCOs, beneficial cargo owners, et cetera, they sometimes have a different, completely different view of cause and effect than the folks who are sitting up here. Uh, and for me, sometimes I look at it, it reminds me of that, uh, that, that old poem by uh, Jeffrey God, Godfrey Sachs about the blind men uh, and the elephant, right? You remember that? You know, the one blind man goes up and touches the, the tusk and he thinks the elephant is a spear. Uh, the other blind man goes up, touches the side of the elephant and thinks the elephant is a wall. One touches the tail and thinks it's a rope. Another touches the, the ear, thinks the, the elephant is a fan. One touches the, the trunk, thinks the elephant is a snake. And one touches the knee uh, and thinks that the elephant is a tree. And John Godfrey Sachs ends that poem, and I always love these words. He says, and so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right, all were in the wrong. But here we have our four panelists uh, who are all approaching uh, the same issue from uh, from their respective businesses and places in the supply, ch supply chain. So to my right uh, is Randy Chen, who's vice uh, chairman of Juan High Lines. Uh, to his right uh, is Bud Dar, executive vice president of maritime policy and government affairs uh, for the MSC group. Uh, to his right is Mario Cadero, executive director of the Port of Long Beach in California. Many of you remember uh, Mario was the former FCC, FMC uh, commissioner and chairman. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, and to his right um, is Beth Ann Rooney. Uh, Beth Ann is the uh, most recently appointed director of the Port Commerce Department here in New York of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Uh, Beth Ann succeeded Sam Ruda, for those of you who know Sam, uh, just earlier this year and is uh, a welcome addition to, uh, to the port to this position. So what I'd like to do, um, you know, we have, uh, we have seen supply chain inefficiencies and interruptions and disruptions over the years, but nothing like what has happened uh, since 2020. 
And so what I'd like to do is start by asking you, each of you, to look back uh, and to give uh, us your impressions of why these challenges and disruptions have occurred uh, within the respective uh, supply chain positions that each of you occupy. Starting with Randy, when I, I what I've, I've heard from Randy before, his, his highway metaphor, which is quite good, actually. Um, and so um, if I could ask each of you to give your unique perspectives on why, what has happened and why it has happened since 2020. Randy? Thanks, John. And it's a pleasure to share the stage with, with the rest of our colleagues here. Uh, it's really good to see everyone in person after so many years. Um, a couple of you may have already heard me say this, so forgive me if this is uh, repeating things that you've already heard. Uh, you know, container shipping is, is oftentimes uh, kind of regarded as, as the plumbing in, in our economy. Uh, so there's a large lack of understanding of, of what it really, um, what are the dynamics that affect it. You know, some of the things that were talked about in the previous panel with supply and demand dynamics definitely apply, but it really has to do with the fact that our industry is a flow industry. It's a flow industry that doesn't stop because demand is very projectable over a long period of time. And in the, what John's referring to in the 10-lane highway example is you have to look at containers like cars literally on a 10-lane highway. And the reason why that's analogous is anyone who uh, commutes uh, to work know exactly when they have to leave to get there by a certain time. And it's the same thing with our BCOs, with the beneficial cargo owners. If they have Christmas-related items, back to school, whatever seasonality items, they know exactly when they have to, the car has to leave the garage, literally. And uh, one of the things that people forget about COVID is that the very beginning of COVID involved China shutting down first. Uh, just like we see lockdowns now, that was what was happening at the very beginning. And so literally the cars couldn't get out of the garages, right, because the factories are closed. Uh, it wasn't because there wasn't a lack of orders on the, buying, on the buy side. And so as a result, literally overnight, four lanes worth of traffic worth of cars disappeared. And so our response as an industry was literally to idle vessels, to return charter vessels to owners, to aggressively scrap vessels that were old at that time, and effectively reduce the lanes of the highway to match the flow of cars. So we went to six lanes. But really by July and August, it was clear that the garage doors were opening because the factories are open. Uh, retailers were restocking inventories that were lean at that period of time. And then stimulus started to come in, 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 in a at a certain scale. So we saw the, the flow of, of cars, if you will, containers, go back to 10, 10 lanes very quickly. And because we are the most fungible part of the supply chain, we were able to restore a lot of that capacity on a, on a pretty quick basis. You know, I, you know Bud... At MSC, they, they're super aggressive across the board, just as we were, not just in the Trans-Pacific, but everywhere in the world in re redeploying capacity. But one of the things that's super important to think about, and this is why we're here with Beth Ann and with Mario, is that this is only one section of the highway, right? The trucks are another section of the highway. The warehouse capacity, the terminals, those are all different sections of the highway. And for all of you who've been commuting, notwithstanding what's happening with the UN assembly traffic today, <laughs> Uh, you can appreciate that when you're going down a highway and it narrows down to six or go, comes up to seven and goes up to ten and then comes back to seven, you know, you're going to have a slowdown in the velocity uh, or at least the timing of how you get to work. And that's really what we're still struggling with today 
because it isn't just the fact that slowly all the sections of the highway are getting back up to 10. It's the fact that stimulus has brought the traffic up to 12 lanes of highway worth of cars, right? And we're still struggling with keeping up with that part from the shipping side, but definitely on the land side as well. And then the, the last thing I want to mention about it is that as different COVID, direct COVID disruptions happen, meaning like Ningbo went down for three weeks, Yentian went down for four weeks, that's akin to having traffic accidents as this flow of traffic is, is recovering. So if you put a stop to these major uh, port facilities, especially in Asia, the spillover effect in the other ports ripples out for a very long period of time. And so that's why this has been a struggle. Uh, you know, we've done a very good job, I think, uh, as well as we can do. I, the mantra in COVID, the one that my wife and I remind each other when we're stuck together is, we're all doing the best we can. And, and that's literally what's been happening. We are doing the best we can, right? Uh, so I think we're kind of past the, that point uh, in trying to understand what are the medium-term dynamics. And hopefully that just gives you an overview of uh, how we look at it. Great, Randy. Bud, what do you think? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I think uh, Randy's done a great job of explaining the dynamics. But um, I trust if any of our customers are in the audience, uh, the plumbing he was referred to, referring to is no expression of the content of the pipes in our network. So, um, but I, I think he's explained it extremely well. But when it came to the beginning of the pandemic, keep in mind as well that, like everyone else in the world, we anticipated that volume drop-off, which started with, uh, remember this came right after the Lunar New Year as well, with a unprecedented extended drop on the supply side of exports from China in particular, um, we also anticipated global recession. That's what everybody was, was, was talking about. And you have to keep in mind, our, our industry has operated, certainly for the last 20 years, uh, even more so since 2008, on very nominal profitability when it's there. So what happened over time is there was less and less excess capacity available in the networks because we couldn't afford to take the risk of having that excess capacity. We had about what we needed to deal with the seasonal fluctuations and you know various things that happened to disrupt the supply chains worldwide. There wasn't a lot of extra capacity around there. So when we saw this big bounce back that I don't know how many of you in this room share my view, but I never saw that coming, that in Q3, we would see this massive surge in demand from particularly the U.S. to a lesser degree in Europe, but it was kind of unique to the developed countries, requiring us not only to redeploy all the capacity we'd taken out of service to match the initial drop-off, but to somehow cope with a surge in cargo that we didn't ever think we would see that sort of a mood swing on the upside um, for volumes. So... We did the best we could. We basically deployed every bit of capacity that existed. And then newcomers came into the market as well to try and add capacity. But what happened? I mean, we didn't forget how to run ships. I mean, we did not forget how to take a ship from A to B, do it on time, do it well. We're great at that. But the problem was there was no place to drop off the cargoes. And at times, the pandemic caused... Uh, either worker disruptions or facility disruptions on the Asian side of the equation as well for the outbound exports, which led to more delays on that side, and then the ships piling up on the uh, import side for 
the, the U.S. in particular, but to a lesser degree, Europe. And one thing about this is, you know, it's kind of like squeezing a balloon. You know, you'd see an improvement in one area, but it's all an interconnected ecosystem, and they weren't necessarily in sync. So you get better in one place and get worse in another place. We're still seeing some of that dynamic today. But all of those things, with the exception of worker absenteeism and reactions from governments that had severe impacts on the ability to, to, to move cargoes were really an expression of latent shortcomings in supply chain and logistics um, inland. And those were there in different shapes and sizes in different locations, different regions, different countries. But this somewhat black swan of an event, maybe not quite a black swan because you certainly can think of a pandemic, um, really just exacerbated all that. And, and you said, you know, 12-lane highway. I like to think of the um, Spinal Tap movie where the amplifier goes to 11 instead of 10. Uh, it really just brought all of those latent problems to the forefront. We haven't seen solutions to those yet. And the workforce shortages that we're seeing today, the inflationary pressure uh, on wages and um, institutional resistance to some of the things that have to be done to increase the productivity on the U.S. ports, you know, are still falling short. There's a lot of work to be done there, including if one element of the supply chain is working 24-7, it needs to match up with other elements that are working 24-7 in order to reach the maximum potential of the infrastructure we've got. Thank you. Bud, thanks very much. So that brings us to uh, the ports. So we have uh, Mario from the uh, Port of Long Beach and Beth Ann uh, from uh, the Port of New York and New Jersey. What do you say? Well, thank you, John, and uh, thank you all for uh, attending this session. Uh, obviously, the Port Authority's supply chain has been a subject matter at the high level of discussion in the last couple of years. So I think uh, Randy and Bud gave you an overview. But I think uh, from a port perspective, and one that I had when I was at the FMC as chairman, the ultimate question for all of us is we have realized, uh, that is, those of us in the industry knew, but those outside the industry uh, didn't give it much thought, that the supply chain is not as resilient as we thought. So my view of the whole aspect is it's another event, unforeseen, COVID-19, that occurs, that when there's a bump in the road, there's chaos in the supply chain. Uh, be it a bankruptcy by a carrier, a labor negotiation, or economic event. But I think for me the good news is we are having some substantive discussions in terms of issues that we've talked previously. And those issues, I will refer everyone to the FMC congestion study issued back in July of 2015, where in that study the Federal Maritime Commission forewarned that if we didn't address the supply uh, chain issues that were addressed by that study, it would have eventually a serious economic impact to the nation. And here we are in year 2020 when that event occurred, and we are here in 2022 now talking again about lack of equipment, chassis, rail cars, about gate hours. So I think for me the summation is we need to now take this opportunity uh, and not ease up because things may be getting somewhat normalized in the supply chain to really address the ultimate question. And that is, how do we change the operations to a 21st century mindset, uh, both within the Port Authority and outside the Port Authority? And I think Bud touched on something that for me 
I, I've been very firm, and I'm not going to step back from the 24-7 vision. I think ultimately, and again, we're not reinventing the wheel here. That's exactly what happens in Asia. So ultimately for us is how do we expand the gate hours of operation, particularly when there's an event. Now, the onus is not just on the port of the terminals, as Bud referenced. It has to be throughout the supply chain. So I think one of the challenges for the port authorities, at least for Long Beach and the San Peter Bay complex, is no matter what we try to do with cargo velocity, where does the container go? Warehouses were at full capacity. So I think this is another example of what we need to do to address issues that none of us are foreign to or new to, and hopefully we now start moving to a point where we talk about cargo velocity as, a, as opposed to cargo volatility. So that's, that's my summation on the present crisis. Bethann. So, uh, John, again, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Hard to follow these uh, three fine gentlemen and everything that they've already said, but I want to I build on uh, Randy's analysis for the highway, and, and he referenced the, the plumbing of the economy. And I have actually been using, you know, the analogy or the metaphor of an actual pipeline. And imagine the pipeline that is on the street outside your house that's six feet in diameter, and as it comes across your front lawn, it might only be, you know, 12 or 18 inches, and as it gets to your kitchen sink or your bathroom faucet, you're talking about an inch or less, right? So that's the same concept that we're dealing with in our global supply chain. Ports overseas are working 24-7, 365. Ships are operating 24-7, 365. U.S. ports on the uh, wharf side are working 24-7, 360. A couple of holidays that uh, we're not allowed to work. And then you get into the yard and the gate, and as you get out of the gate, the system and the pipeline get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So ultimately, the capacity of our ports is based on the end of the supply chain and the lowest common denominator. So if we're not able to, to feed the rest of the supply chain who has, has, doesn't have the same capacity as our ports and our terminals and the ships have, then we all get constrained in our ability to have fluidity and the capacity that the ports, the terminal operators, the ocean carriers have built into the network is artificially suppressed because of the lack of capacity that has been put into the parts of the supply chain downstream from the ports. So, you know, we've, I think we're all well aware of, you know, the growth that U.S. ports have experienced the major ports in the United States have experienced anywhere between 30 to 40 percent growth since the pandemic. Think about all those operations that are downstream from us, chassis, trucks, truck drivers, warehouse capacity, warehouse workers, distribution centers, fulfillment centers, and show me which of those entities have actually developed the capacity to handle an increase of 30 to 40 percent of the business. So, you know, as a result of this, this ecosystem is again artificially suppressed. And if we want to continue to handle the volume that the U.S. economy uh, is, is uh, requiring, you know, of us, 
There has to be not just the change in behavior that, that Mario and, and Bud you know, talked about, uh, but there has to be an investment. And there has to be equal investment in the rest of the supply chain so that our ports, our terminals, and our vessels can have the capacity, utilize the capacity and the fluidity that is necessary to get goods to consumers when and where they want them, you know, at uh, the price that uh, everybody's willing to pay for it. Thanks, Bethann. Just, just to put a finer point on what Mario and Bethann were talking about, uh, at least on the East Coast, Mario, I don't know if this is true on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, vessel operations tend to occur 24 hours a day. Uh, gate operations, getting the containers out the, out the door, is not a 24-hour operation, right? That's yeah. the problem. Well, so it is a, it is a problem, and, and let me, you know, so if, if I go back in time to just before the pandemic, our conversations with the trucking community were, we need Saturday hours. Give us Saturday hours. Uh, you can't continue to operate, you know, in the same hours that you were operating in, you know, 2010 and 20,000 20, and 1990, right? So what did we do in response to the pandemic? We opened our Saturday gates, and what was the result? Crickets. Pretty much crickets. 4%, total of 4% of our cargo has moved out on Saturdays in the last 20 months. Our terminal operators have spent more than $30 million a year to open their gates on a Saturday, and they're not being utilized. So, and the response from the trucking community to why are you not using these Saturday gates that you suggested that, it, that you wanted from us, there's no chassis, there's not enough truck drivers, the truck drivers have run out of their hours of service. So again, it comes back to we're at the spigot in our kitchen you know, or bathroom sink that doesn't have enough capacity. You know, these, uh, these pressures on the supply chain are obviously driven by volumes, container volumes in particular, loaded onto existing inefficiencies. Um, Bud and uh, Randy, I mean, where, are, where do you see container volumes today uh, compared to where we were two years ago. And the same question is going to be for Mario and Bethann. And where do you see them now that we're presumably, uh, in an, well, we are in a high inflationary period and looking straight at the potential of recession if it's not already here? Where are we today in terms of volumes? Are we still at a historically high volumes in terms of the uh, carriage of goods? Yeah. Um, the... So, so I said earlier, the Trans-Pacific, actually every trade's demand is pretty projectable. And in the U U.S., it's usually between three, no more than 5%, kind of in a boom economy time. To give you, to give everyone a sense of the scale, and that's why I use 12, 12 lanes of traffic, it's, we're literally at 20% higher volumes than on a pre-pandemic basis, right? And that's not a very long period of time. Uh, and so that's, that's the exceptional kind of demand driven boom that, that we're experiencing. And earlier, Bethann referred to 30 40%. That's not taking into account kind of the structural changes that have also happened. Uh, you know, we talked yesterday, actually, about the fact that there's so much cargo that has shifted from the West Coast, which traditionally is where the cargo lands, to the East Coast because of uh, kind of risk mitigation, if you will, by, by cargo owners to try to see if they aren't overly exposed to, to the to LA Long Beach Gateway. So that's why, you know, it depends a little bit on the ports, but really 20% is the headline number uh, that we see. Yeah, so 
I, I agree with you know Randy's top line uh, assessment, and also that this is not an asymmetrical shift in the demand signals from our customers. And keep in mind, you know, our networks are are there to adapt to the needs of the customers, whether it's in the short term in a couple of months or whether it's over a period of years that might have to adapt to some major modifications in supply chains over time. Um, but it hasn't been symmetrical. And, and this shift rapidly, uh, because of choices our customers have made towards Gulf and, and uh, East Coast ports, has caused some, some really undue hardship. But what we are seeing, if we look at the trends, um, and if you think about our industry, it is a very good leading indicator of genuine economic trade activity. And if you look at the trends, there's no doubt we are seeing a substantial decrease in overall volumes at the moment. That could change. But it brings one to question, hey, is inflation really starting to take a bite on that huge, huge growth in consumer spending demand that we saw in the U.S. previously? Um, I'm not going to predict the answer, but if you think about it, it could be a sign that maybe this downswing could be a continuing trend. Um, if it's not and it stays flat, we're still dealing with, as Randy said, considerably more volume than we had pre-pandemic. And I have to say, I mean, despite all the hardship, uh, particularly for our customers, the ports and the carriers, I think, have done an amazing job of keeping everything moving. And, and our seafarers and the harbor workers deserve a huge amount of credit, um, sometimes at, at substantial risk and extended contracts being you know, necessary to keep things moving. They did it. They kept the world's economy functioning in a time of you know, unprecedented upheaval due to a pandemic. But I couldn't agree with that statement more. When guys like me were sitting in our pajamas in front of a computer and working, well, your guys were out there actually moving cargo. It was phenomenal, just phenomenal. Um, let me ask um, Randy and, um, and Bud, um, the, these disruptions in, uh, that we've seen, did they across, come across, uh, were they felt across all trade lanes, or was this mostly an east-west event? Uh, I, th I think the pattern followed in almost every market. I think the difference is there are, there are different markets that have long-term uh, practices, particularly on the land side, that allows for more resiliency. So when we say, you know, when Beth Ann Ridge just referred to the fact that it was hard to get anyone to come in when you open gates on Saturday, you know, this flow of traffic came, started in China, right? As I said, the garage doors opened, the factories opened, the, the, the boxes started coming. China did slow down. Right? That we, we looked at the turnaround time at every single segment because we could see that visibility in our, in our systems. And you can see the turnaround time in China, pickup of boxes, delivery boxes to the terminal, even the terminal not being up to pre-pandemic levels. But the difference was within two to three weeks, they had managed to make up that differential in productivity. Uh, and that's, I think, the difference in some of these markets. Um, I mean, the reality is some markets actually took longer to open up than, than the U.S., uh, but, you know, for, for us, I like the analogy of plumbing uh, because very much container flow as well as kind of container uh, shipping supply goes, like, goes downhill. It goes to literally the most profitable part of, the, of your network. And so redeploying that capacity sometimes masks over some of those inefficiencies in different countries. Um, but that's where, I, you know, some of the differences lie. Yeah, I, but, uh, 
again, I, I think Randy summarized it well, but um, my short answer is no, it hasn't affected all trade lanes equally. The amplitude of the impacts varied, but also the timing varied significantly. And we're still seeing that as well as we move into what's probably a, a, a different phase of what is probably a longer-term recovery of the supply chains. For, so, for example, um, if you look at the published indexes on volumes and, and, uh, and, and spot rates of the Trans-Pacific market um, and the reaction by the carriers, they're moving more and more capacity into the transatlantic market now, which tends to need that. If you look at the, the, the public material on that, that's happened globally as well uh, because reactions from governments weren't at the same time and they weren't um, and they and they weren't necessarily the same reactions and the effects on production of the goods that we're shipping was not affected in the same way at all times. So not only did we see it on the way into this problem, but I think as we recover out of it and things get more into balance, and I think you know we're, we're largely into that rebalancing now, um, how long that takes and how equal that distribution of the problems are will depend on some of those same factors. Yeah. And Mario and Bethann, I mean, uh, I, I wonder, I mean, I, I don't think you know, the, the issues about which you just spoke occurred uniformly across the entire port sector of the United States. There were some ports that were harder hit than others, right? And why? Well, <clears throat> number one, uh, let's focus on the major container gateways in the United States. Uh, because, again, when you look at that scenario, there's not, there's not any port, let's say the top ten major gateways in the United States, None of those 10 port authorities have been immune from these issues. I mean, with all the talk about what was occurring in the West Coast earlier this year, uh, now I can represent in Southern California, we're doing pretty good in terms of the vessel backup. But where are the issues now in other parts of the country? So I think it goes to Bud's point and Randy that this is a supply chain issue that needs to be addressed. And I think for that reason, uh, let's keep in mind that, you know, volume right now, uh, is a concern uh, in that, and by that I mean because of the big volumes, we're having this issue, these issues. I would like to say that volume is irrelevant in terms of what we need to do in the supply chain. And let me tell you one reason why. I was a commissioner at the Port of Long Beach uh, in the early spring of 2004. I was six months into this position as commissioner at the Port of Long Beach. Our then managing director of uh, trade and, and commercial was a gentleman named Don Wiley. Don Wiley came from the industry, so he knew what he was doing. He wrote a memo, of which I still have, uh, in my files in the garage, which my wife wants to burn them all, you know. Uh, and by that, you know, our garage is pretty crowded. She says, you know, th there's no sense keeping all this stuff here. Well, I think it's valuable because I found a memo uh, issued by Don Wiley in February of 2004 forewarning the commission that because of the challenges we were having with delays that we should start thinking about a 24-7 operation. February of 2004. How many containers did the Port of Long Beach move that year? 5.3 million. Here we are in 2022 and we're still talking about 24-7 and the challenges those who debate that but the point being is, in Southern California, between Long Beach and Los Angeles, last year we moved 20 million TEUs. You cannot operate 
the way you did in 2004 with that volume. So whether it's 5.3 million TEUs, or at least for Long Beach that year, or 20 for the San Pedro Bay complex in 2021, that number is not significantly going to get any less as we go forward. And the last thing I'll say on this, in the summer, in the spring of 2019, uh, I'm sorry, 2020, when COVID came and we had a virtual conference at the TPM, uh, if I recall the year, uh, Jeremy Nixon, the CEO of the ONE, was asked, uh, Mr. Nixon, what do you think about the West Coast and the delays that are having are occurring here? And he said, well, one factor was I pick up my cargo from a part of the, uh, of the world where they're 24-7. I come here, and I have to wait for you guys to open up your gates in hours, so to speak. Now, he said that with regard to the supply chain, because we are 24-7 when it comes to the carriers and terminals. Any terminal that doesn't do that is not going to have a carrier call at your terminal. The problem is what happens when that container is unloaded and gets to the terminal, everything stops. Uh, I'm talking about the cargo in motion. Interesting. Beth? Yeah, so, uh, you know, to, just to add a little bit more to that, you know, I think the ports and terminals around the United States are, are similar, you know, to the ocean carriers where, you know, the pandemic hasn't affected everybody uh, the same way and the pandemic-related demand hasn't affected everyone the same way. As Mario said, you know, among the top 10 ports in the United States, which are probably handling 85 to 90 percent of all of the container volume, we have all been impacted by it in one way or another. Uh, but it's very dynamic and very fluid as to which port at which time during the pandemic. And then within the ports, particularly gateways like New York, New Jersey, and Los Angeles and Long Beach that have multiple terminals, it is even dependent upon what terminal uh, within a gateway at a particular time uh, because their customer base is different. Uh, the lines and services uh, that they're working with are different. Uh, there's been new services that have entered the market uh, in New York. We're now handling four new services. Uh, I'm sorry, four new ocean carriers that we were not handling prior to the beginning of the pandemic. These are new entrants uh, to the market on the U.S. East Coast, that there was demand and there was, you know, a need to accommodate those. The existing carriers uh, that we've had and had long relations uh, with have added services and added additional strings and added additional vessels uh, to those strings in order, you know, to meet the demand. So, you know, again, um, I think it was Bud who said, you know, the amplitude and the timing of the effect on the ports and terminals, you know, has been very different uh, throughout the last 30 months, but nobody has been immune to it. So, <coughs> yeah, the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I'd like to just spend a couple of minutes on, you know, the commercial workarounds and the congestion clearing um, strategies that you've all had over the last couple of years and what you've implemented or have thought about. Uh, and I'd like to start with, uh, with two, and I think you and Mario uh, share this, uh, because there's been a lot, of, um, a lot of talk about the removal and evacuation of empties back to places of origin. And you both talked about, in your respective ports, something called a container imbalance fee or a removal fee or whatever it is. You've talked about it. I don't think you've implemented either port has implemented it. What is that about? Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, 
we can't continue to do business the way we were doing in 2000, 2004, 2015, 2019. So at least in the Port of New York and New Jersey, you know, as soon as, you know, COVID was named as something that we needed to be concerned about, and remember, New York and New Jersey was the epicenter, uh, we stood up our Council on Port Performance, which we have had in place now for at least seven years, and we had just decided going into 2020 that we were going to uh, scale back to a quarterly meeting. And as soon as the pandemic was, you know, named as something significant, we went to a weekly meeting. And the purposes, you know, of the Council on Port Performance was really to identify all of these issues that were going to impact our resiliency and how do we try to get, you know, ahead of them. So. All throughout this 30-month period, there have been any number of changes in business practices uh, that we have put in place, our terminal operators have put in place, that we have encouraged the trucking communities, the chassis providers, the warehouses, and, and whatnot. Uh, and I think because of that, uh, we were, you know, doing pretty well in terms of handling uh, that, you know, excess demand on the port of New, Jer New York and New Jersey until Mario decided to send me all of his cargo uh, <laughs> that, that shifted from the West Coast. But, you know, when we estimate, you know, um, you know, all kidding aside, I mean, we estimate that 70% of our volume growth this year is West Coast cargo that shifted. So, you know, again, that artificial... Uh, growth in the port of New York and New Jersey, you know, is compromising the capacity of the network. So what, what we are most recently struggling with is that we are out of space with regards to any more empty containers coming into the port of New York and New Jersey. And as a result of that, we have truckers, four to 5,000 uh, containers a day that do not have a place to be returned to in the port of New York and New Jersey because we are clear out of room. And we're out of room um, because we're predominantly the first port of call. And being the first port of call in the United States, you know, naturally the ocean carriers, you know, want to, you know, need to, you know, cut and run, you know, get down the coast to the next, you know, port, get their imports uh, off. And those ports in the South Atlantic are much more uh, heavy export ports than we are in New York and New Jersey. So about six weeks ago, we had uh, over 200,000 empty containers uh, sitting around our marine terminals and depots. Uh, together with our terminal operators, we had created 60 additional acres of space for empty containers, and there's just no place else to go. Uh, so we had been talking to the ocean carriers about developing strategies to evacuate them uh, from New York and New Jersey. Uh, we started those conversations in January. Uh, some made uh, very good progress, others not so good progress. Uh, so on August 1, uh, we announced the implementation of a container imbalance fee where we were going to require the ocean carriers to uh, export 10% uh, more than what they import. And if they failed to do that, there would be a, a fee on each of those containers. We heard very loud and very clear from the ocean carrier community, uh, particularly in our port, that that was just not going to be workable um, for some of the carriers, including MSC and, and Juan Hai, uh, that we were focused on the carriers that had tens and tens of thousands of empty containers sitting around the region, not my colleagues you know, here on, on the panel, 
um, and not and we were not focused on the guys that were cooperating and and remaining balanced. Uh, so we our fee is in place, um, and it went into effect on September one. Uh, but we had committed to the ocean carrier community based on feedback that we would take another look at that structure and how we could modify that structure so that we uh, did not impact each of the ocean carriers in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you know we didn't want to do, and, and Juan High you know, was one of them who said, you know, Beth, if you're going to hold us to this, we're going to have to move empty containers into New York, New Jersey, you know, from Philadelphia, you know, or, or Norfolk. And that's the last thing we want is somebody else's empty container. So uh, I'm, going to, <laughs> I'm going to our board of directors uh, tomorrow, board of commissioners tomorrow, uh, with a revised structure. We've socialized uh, that revised structure uh, with a number of the ocean carriers, um, and the fee is still in place. Uh, how we... Uh, calculated is uh, revising slightly. Uh, Nicholas, um, I could spend three hours with these guys. <laughs> to me, this is fascinating. Um, but I'm looking at three zeros on my clock here. Uh, I hate to do this, but this is, I guess, our time to break. I, I hate to say that, but we need, we have an agenda. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, if that's the case, Nicholas, let me just thank. I We're mean, not 24-7 really here. I mean, it's a <laughs> conversation in motion. Yeah, we got to start now. hotel rooms and talk about this stuff all over again. So. <laughs> let, me, let me just, um, Nicholas, uh, tell you the question I really wanted to ask today that I didn't get to, and it was to Mario. Because Mario is the only one on this panel who, was a, is, a, who is a regulated entity and was a regulator, Right. He was, he's a regulated entity as a marine terminal operator, and he was a regulator at the FMC. I don't see how the FMC solves all these problems that it th- thinks it's going to solve. Um, maybe you have a different view, and maybe we don't have time to discuss it. That's another three-hour program. Um, but what do you think quickly? Ultimately, to solve this problem, as Bud and Randy were referencing in all of us, it's a supply chain issue. It's a collaboration of all the stakeholders. I think the FMC will be able to escalate and highlight the issues of what we need to do, going back to the study that was issued in July 2015. I mean, to think about the fact that in the era of non-regulation and, 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 and nothing happening in Washington, D.C., the one thing that moved real quickly was the bipartisan support for the amendment to the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. So what does that tell you? That tells you that this, there's no divide when it comes to what needs to be done for the supply chain, particularly when the American exporter is a victim of some of these issues, you know, detention and demurs and et cetera. But I also want to make a point here. I think this audience should know that the port authorities and the carriers have had extreme collaboration, uh, thanks to the leadership of the administration and the White House envoy, to address these issues. But I think, for me, we've done all we can to try to address this complexity here. What's missing here is the beneficial cargo owner. We are full at the terminals, full at the warehouses, because they don't pick up the cargo. So that's something that, again, with all due respect to all of us here who have been, we've been in the, in the headlines, there has to be a focus also on the beneficial cargo owner, our mutual customer, that has accumulated this cargo, and it's not going anywhere. 
Uh, so that's an issue that has to be addressed. Mario, I couldn't agree more. And with that, thank you all very, very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.